Hello and welcome to episode 342 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you so much for joining me today for this episode, which comes from the southwest of England, a brutal murder. I'm delighted that today's podcast is sponsored by Canva. Creating visual content is an essential part of what I do. You may have seen some of my social posts, videos and so on, but if you have seen some of my attempts, you will know that for me the creative process hasn't always been easy, to say the very, very least, and some of my efforts have been embarrassingly poor. Canva for Teams is a design platform that makes it easy for anyone to create stunning content in any format, from social media posts to videos, presentations and websites. I spoke a few weeks ago about the range of templates which have transformed my design world, and recently I've been using Canva's AI-powered magic features such as Magic Eraser. Now it's so good, you can easily make your subject stand out and clean up unwanted details in your images. Just brush over the area and watch as the distraction is magically removed. It's perfect for making photo bombers like chip-stealing seagulls disappear. How cool is that? Design and collaborate with Canva for Teams. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you go to canva.me slash truecrime. That's C-A-M-V-A dot M-E slash truecrime for a free 45-day extended trial. Canva.me slash truecrime. Okay, so let's set some context for today's story with our guest a month from the year game. Top of the UK charts was Life from Simply Red. This band have had almost as many retirements from performing as Elton John, but they're still going strong today. In the US, top of the charts was Mariah Carey with some drivel or other, but number two was the late Coolio with a much more memorable Gangster's Paradise. The top-selling album in Australia this year was Don't Ask from Tina Arena. In the news this month, GoldenEye, the 17th James Bond film, was released starring Piers Brosnan for the first time, the late Robbie Coltrane and Judi Dench as M. Diana, Princess of Wales, spoke out about her battle with bulimia and admitted that she cheated on Prince Charles in a TV interview. An estimated 22.78 million people watched the broadcast, an all-time record for a UK current affairs programme. The Nick Hornby book High Fidelity was published. Essex teenager Leah Betts died in hospital four days after slipping into a coma after taking an ecstasy tablet. And in UK true crime news, Rose West was found guilty of murdering 10 women and children, including her 16-year-old daughter Heather and 7-year-old stepdaughter Charmaine, after a trial at Winchester Crown Court. She was sentenced to life imprisonment with a recommendation that she is never released. So did you guess the month and year, or once again did you just miss out? It was November 1995. Imagine, almost nobody had a mobile phone and many had never used the internet. Very different times indeed. Today's story comes from one of my favourite cities, Plymouth, which is located in the southwest of England, almost 250 miles away from London and 120 miles southwest of Bristol. From Bristol, it's one of those journeys I always think I can drive in an hour, but it's more like two and a half. You know how it is, don't you? Plymouth today is a modern, vibrant city. 
and with the exception of their ridiculous councillors allowing historic trees to be cut down in the middle of the night, it is, generally speaking, a welcoming and friendly place, including for members of the LGBT plus community. But when we joined the story today back in 1995, like much of the UK, it was a very different place with different attitudes. Plymouth's gay community usually kept to themselves and they rarely ventured out of the known gay venues in the city for fear of encountering homophobia. One of the city's openly gay men at the time and a social worker, Jonathan Madley, highlighted just how bad the fear was at this time when he stated, The general attitude in Plymouth is one of fear and lack of confidence. Gay people are scared of stirring up homophobia and don't want to stick their head over the parapet. During that period of time, Central Park, which sits in the heart of Plymouth, was a well-known area for gay men to meet. If you know the area, it's the largest park in Plymouth, with wonderful wide boulevards running through the park's open woodlands and meadows, up and down hills, with some great views over the city, towards Plymouth Sound and then looking out towards Cornwall. It was also an area in 1995 that gay men used for meeting. It's hard to recall in this mobile and internet age, but in 1995 meeting people of any sex was much, much more tricky. And before the era of Grindr and other dating apps, meeting other gay men in particular was extremely difficult. Whilst the act of homosexuality had been partly decriminalised by the Sexual Offences Act of 1967, other anti-gay laws and the AIDS crisis had meant that many men remained closeted about their sexuality. Many areas had been the targets for homophobic hate crimes, and it was no different for Central Park in Plymouth, but many of the victims didn't report the attacks to the police. One victim, Bob, who was quoted, did go to the police after being attacked and was told by a detective, if you go there, what do you expect? Bob later stated, People are scared to report things. They don't want the stigma or retribution and the usual don't care response from the police. Now look, we're not knocking the police here. We don't on this podcast. There's been massive progress in this area now, although of course nobody's also pretending for a moment that it's perfect. A popular face among the gay community in Plymouth in the 90s was 64-year-old Terry Sweet. Those who knew Terry described him as a loving man who is always kind and considerate to others, and he lived with his partner Albert for several years. In the 90s, Terry created a gay social group in Plymouth called All Fellas, which met on Wednesday evenings and they put on various social events. On the 6th of November 1995, Terry was walking through Central Park with his friend Bernie Hawkin, and he passed by the shelter area of the park which was known at the time as a site where gay men met. Those who knew Terry knew that he frequently walked through the park after drinking with friends in the local pubs as it was on his way home and he never frequented the park for sexual activity. But Terry and Bernie didn't make it home that night. In the early hours of the following morning, the bodies of Terry and Bernie were discovered lying just 200 yards apart in the park and it was clear that both had suffered the most terrible violent assault. And sadly, soon after the police found Terry, he died from his injuries, aged just 64. Miraculously, Bernie survived the horrific attack, 
but his injuries were so severe that he was left with brain damage and didn't ever fully recover from those injuries sustained in the beating. In fact, following this attack, he spent the rest of his life in a wheelchair. Later, the pathologist shed light on just how severe this brutal beating was. The injuries sustained to Terry's face from the repeated stamping left him with identical fractures on each side of his face. In addition to this, Terry's lungs were flooded with blood and multiple broken ribs, and he sustained lacerations to his face, side and groin, which were made by a knife. The killer, or killers, had also stamped on Terry's groin area, which caused his intestines to rupture internally, and then left to die in a park in the centre of Plymouth on a winter's evening. It's hard to comprehend, isn't it? The local community was incensed by the attack and it was feared that there could have been a homophobic motivation for the assault. A witness very quickly came forward. At the time of the attack, Stephen McTaggart was walking his dog when he came to the shelter part of the park and he noticed three young men, maybe even teenagers, brutally beating Terry and Bernie. One of the teenagers spotted Stefan from about 12 feet away and armed with an object in his hand, the teenager approached Stefan and shouted, Do you want some as well? Stefan began to swing the dog lead around as a defence and eventually all three of the boys ran away. He chased the group before they stopped and confronted him again. As the trio surrounded Stefan, they shouted, Kill the queer! Kill the queer bastard! Stefan began to swing the dog lead and ran away, with the gang behind him throwing rocks and stones which they picked up from the floor in the park. As one of the teenagers faced off with Stefan, Stefan swung the dog lead, catching the teenager heavily on his arm. He then managed to escape, deeply shaken by the events he'd witnessed. As we hear so often on this podcast, those involved in inflicting violence or committing murder seem unable to keep this information to themselves. And that was the case here too. It transpired in a house not too far from Central Park. Three friends, 18-year-old Richard Bounds, 18-year-old Roberto Pace, and 19-year-old Stuart Smith, had spent the afternoon drinking, taking pills, smoking cannabis, and inhaling solvents, as you do. One of the trio was avidly watching Tarantino's cult film Pulp Fiction, before they headed out for the evening. These three young men were from middle-class backgrounds. They'd been given every opportunity in their lives and had attended one of Plymouth's best-known grammar schools. Pace's parents ran a successful historical seafront cafe. Bounds' dad was a solicitor and Smith's father was a golf club steward. They weren't desperate people living on the edge of society. The three were first spotted as they exited Central Park after the attack. Sickeningly, neighbours to the park had heard a group of young people bragging, we did good, we showed them. As the trio had left the park, they flagged down a friend who was driving past the area who gave him a lift back to Pace's house. He later claimed to have heard one of the boys confess that they'd stabbed someone and Pace later told his girlfriend that he was in a fight with some gay men and even implied that he attacked one of them. Another of the young men, Richard Bounds, was later turned in by his dad, a senior solicitor at Plymouth City Council. 
After noticing his son doing a load of late night washing and cleaning his pair of trainers, Richard's dad thought this was very strange behaviour. This concern was heightened after hearing the news about Terry's brutal murder in Central Park. After confronting his son, Bounds confessed to being at the scene of the crime and throwing one punch, but he denied being involved in the beating and he stated that he'd even tried to stop the attack. The third attacker, Stuart Smith, even went on to tell his friend that he was one of Terry Sweet's killers. Smith had told his friend that the trio had seen some gays doing something and it soon escalated and got out of hand. With all three unable to stay silent, they were soon in custody. Again, as we hear so often, once the bravado of being with their mates is replaced with the frightening reality of a cell and the prospect of a long prison sentence, stories and attitudes tend to change rather quickly. According to Pace in his interviews, as they were walking through Central Park, they crossed paths with Terry and Bernie. He told the police that as he walked past the shelter, Terry tried to sexually assault him, and as he grabbed the teenager, the three friends launched a frenzied attack. The teenager that was struck with a lead by the witness was Pace, and it was this injury on his arm from the lead that confirmed his ID. He later, of course, made changes to this story, one that he would stick to at the later trial, when he now claimed that rather than being sexually attacked by Terry, he was spaced out, he had just flipped out and had no recollection of the attack. Pace's track record of violence did not support this interpretation of events for one moment. He'd previously attacked a man at the very same spot, leaving him blind. Remember, Pace is just 18. Detectives believed they'd enough to secure a conviction and the case went to court. At the conclusion of the trial, Roberto Pace, Stuart Smith and Richard Bounds were found guilty of Terry's murder and were sent straight to youth custody. Stuart was sentenced to 15 years, Roberto received a 14-year sentence and Richard was sentenced to custody for 12 years. After such a horrendous murder which horrified the vast majority of the residents of Plymouth, you might assume that such a tragic event would bring everyone together and finally open the eyes to the struggles and fears of the LGBT community. However, this crime initially had the opposite effect. Following the horrific murder, homophobia initially increased in the city, leaving many young gay men at the time fearful of coming out. Disturbing graffiti was posted, including No queers here, you're banned, or face death. And on the path near where Terry was murdered, someone spray-painted the outline of a body next to the words, Please step over, spilt AIDS. Alan Butler, later the founder of Pride in Plymouth, told ITV years later, I just remember being really scared and thinking that Plymouth is a dangerous place for me to be and perhaps not a place I'm able to come out as a gay man. It was a scary time. In 1997, two years after the murder, the case against the three killers was referred to the then Home Secretary, Jack Straw. It was questioned whether Bounds' sentence should be raised to 18 years. However, despite considering this, Straw opted against raising Bounds' sentence. Following their imprisonment, little is known about what happened to the killers. 
but a decade after the brutal murders, two of them had won a court reprieve, meaning that Pace's and Smith's minimum tariff were dropped. This really meant that Pace could seek parole in 2010 and Smith even earlier in 2007. The judge stated that he'd reduced the killer's sentences due to the progress they'd made whilst in prison and on account of the remorse they'd shown. According to the judge, Pace had shown, I quote, a willingness to face up to the enormity of the crimes he committed and was making a sustained attempt to better himself and thereby use his incarceration as a launching pad for a law-abiding worthwhile future. As for Smith, the judge claimed he'd shown apparently genuine remorse and had made good steady progress whilst in custody. In the years following Terry's murder, things slowly began to change in Plymouth for the LGBT community. Former Detective Superintendent Stuart Newbury, who led the murder inquiry, said, It really brought it home that there were sections of the community that didn't have the confidence in the police to report incidents. That was a real big lesson. It meant the police had to be much more aware of their conduct, of the way they interacted with members of the public and other agencies. In March 1997, a helpline was launched which allowed victims of homophobic hate crimes a safe space to hand over evidence to the police and receive tailored support. A volunteer explained, I was invited to the police station and was asked if I could set up a helpline which would bridge the gap between the local police and the local gay community. And I have to say at the time there was a strong groundswell of support from, you know, local pubs, local clubs, and there were volunteers who put themselves forward to man, to start, this kind of helpline. So we probably had eight or ten volunteers from across the community who started taking calls from people. Now if we go back to the two men that were attacked, as we know that Terry sadly lost his life, and unfortunately there is very little information about Bernie Hawkins' life following the attack. What is known is that he was left permanently disabled following the beating and was confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life before Bernie died in 2017. In 2021, Pride of Plymouth and Labour MP Luke Pollard started a crowdfunding page to raise money for a lasting and fitting memorial to Terry Sweet and Bernie Hawkin. The appeal aimed to raise money for a plaque on a restored bench in the park and the willow tree planting in memory of the two men and educational programmes to address hate towards the LGBT community in the city. It was hoped that the memorial would also celebrate how far the city had come since that dark night in November 1995. The appeal successfully raised over £3,000. And the comment section of the appeal saw a real outpour of love and grief for the two men, with people sharing some of their own experiences and memories of a very dark time. The local MP, Luke Pollard, said, The murder, the other attacks and the graffiti which came afterwards showed the rotten underbelly of hatred in Plymouth. We've come an enormously long way and this needs to be not about remembering the murder but reminding us that homophobic abuse is not confined to the recent past and there are people still being beaten for their sexual identity. We need to reflect on those changes and what still needs to be done. We need something that can be fitting and celebratory a place where people can have a moment of reflection where everyone should be able to enjoy it because everyone should be able to enjoy the same rights.
and in March 2023, in memory of Terry and Bernie, a willow tree was planted in Plymouth Central Park. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Unfortunately, we've heard of so many attacks on this podcast over the last seven years, attacks on innocent people. The one we heard about today was an utterly horrendous one by three men, 18 and 19, on two older men walking home from a night out. I know it's obvious, but two men walking across the park after a night with friends should never fear attack because of who they choose to sleep with. It's just so ridiculous and hard for us to comprehend, isn't it? Why the hell does anyone care who somebody else is attracted to? But as today we are looking especially at the LGBT community during Pride Month, it is easy to forget the tremendous progress that's been made and the work of so many campaigners who have done so much. However, we also must not forget the pain and the tragedies that have occurred throughout the decades, which have allowed the current LGBT community to live their lives more freely. But as always, our final thoughts are with the friends and family of Terry and Bernie. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story and any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to Facebook and join over 90,000 of us who talk UK True Crime 24-7. And to support the show, please do head to patreon.com for bonus episodes and other exclusive content. A huge thank you to the latest members of this community, that's Darren Pierce and Sasha Archer. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you enjoy the almost 60 bonus episodes and other exclusive content. If you want to join us, why wouldn't you? Please head over to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime, and for as little as £1 a month, which you can cancel at any time, you can help me keep the lights on here at UK True Crime HQ in Rochdale. <laughs> On the outskirts. I've had some lovely comments about our exclusive UK True Crime Bloodhound Gin, and if you'd like to try some, see the links in the show notes and you can follow the story on Instagram at UK True Crime and my other social channels. This week, tomorrow, I find out more about tastings and Percy Distillery's liquid tour. So if you're in the Highland Persia area, as well as seeing me, I encourage you to pop into Percy Distillery. They even do a cheeky paddle if you are breezing through. A paddle is tasting, by the way. It's not kayaking. Okay, so that's all for me for another week. Thank you again so much for taking the time to listen. It's much appreciated. So until we speak again on Tuesday, please do take it easy. And most of all, despite all the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now. <laughs>